Amen. You guys, go ahead and grab a seat and um, grab your Bible and your Second Timothy journal if you have one. If you're new and you don't have one, I know we have a couple more, and we'd be happy to hand one of those out to you. Um, we're in this sermon series through the book of Second Timothy, and we're going to be in it for quite a while. And one of the things we want to do with those journals, Christine, I can see you. Will you just hold that up so people can see it? One of the things we want to do is we want to resource you. It's a journal that has the scripture on one side and some open areas for you to take notes on that. And I hope that by the time we're done with this, you have a commentary on the book of Second Timothy. So we are still in Second Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13. So if you want to meet me there, that's where we'll be. One of my favorite stories of American history is about what many people would have called the greatest general of all time. He was accepted into West Point at the age of 15, and at that time, you had to be 16 in order to even get in. The guy was just brilliant. Abraham Lincoln named him the young Napoleon and said that there was never a more brilliant mind than him. He ran up the ranks of the Union Army. He trained armies well. He created amazing strategies, and he positioned people to succeed. The only problem is the brother just wouldn't fight. They, that, that, at some point, Abraham Lincoln had to fire him from being the general of the Union Army because he would not fight. Eventually, he named a guy named Ulysses S. Grant to take over for General McClellan because Ulysses S. Grant, although he had none of the accolades, if you've ever read anything about him, he was the most unassuming guy. He did not want to go to West Point, and he was what you would call just a normal guy who was just kind of a mess up. The difference is, is he would roll up his sleeves and he would go to war with a pit bull. It didn't really matter. He would go headfirst into any battle that there was. See, history is filled with so many people with untapped potential. So many people who know the right things to do, who have studied really well, who can strategize, and yet they just don't do anything with it. That might be the story of the Christian faith in the next hundred years. Christians in the West had every advantage in the world, they might say. They might say they had more money, more education, and they had more than any other people in the history of the world, and yet they didn't change the world. Today, I want to show you that living the Christian life is about living. It's about following. It's about taking action. It's about doing. Maybe you've been told your entire life that the good life is making a lot of money, and setting off, retiring, so you can spend the rest of your life playing golf and, and just hanging out. What if living the good life is about leveraging your best years to build God's kingdom, not taking them off? What if retirement is about filling or freeing up space so that you can do more, not less? I hope that I can help you rethink the reason why God has given us so much. Like we just prayed about. We live in a world, we live in a country, we live in a place where we don't have to worry about a whole lot. We, my biggest decision I make during the day is, am I doing takeout or are we cooking? Like, that seems to be my huge decisions every single day. I think that if we tap into this potential, there is no telling how big of a dent we right now can make in the kingdom of God in this world. Here's what I want to show you. Look at verse 13. Paul says this, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. In faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's break this down. I want to break it down today word by word, because these are the concluding thoughts of Paul for this whole section. So if you think about chapter one, this is where he concludes. Here's the first one. I'm going to highlight it for you on the, on the screen. Follow. 
follow. Can I just stop for a second and, and, and say something about this word follow? The Christian life isn't about a set of doctrines to believe, if you will. It's not only that. It's a way to live. It's a, it's a way of life. Guys, I think that this is so confusing for many of us who have grown up in this Western um, civilization of Christianity because what we think is that Jesus has called us to believe a bunch of stuff. You realize that when Jesus called his first disciples, he did not call them to a seminary class. He called them to follow him. There's a difference here. For many of us, our faith has become theoretical or compartmentalized. We have our work life. We have our home life. We have our sports life. We have our church life. They never intersect because they're neatly fit into these boxes. And yet, the way that Jesus envisioned the Christian life is that it would spill over or bleed over into every sphere of our life. And that's when things get transformational. When, when you're changed by the gospel, it's supposed to bleed into your life. Let, let me try to say it like this. Following is about imitating, right? When you follow somebody, you imitate them. I think about my brother growing up. I wanted to be just like my brother. Anybody else have an older brother or an older sister if you're, if you're a lady and you want to be just like them? I remember the first time my brother got his Adidas snap pants. If you grew up in the 90s, you know what those are. Uh, I had to go to the mall and go get my own Adidas snap pants, and, and I thought I was so cool wearing them until he'd snap them off, and that was never good. I think that's why they don't last uh, anymore. And then uh, my brother wrestled. He started wrestling, and I thought, oh, that's cool. I want to go wrestle. So I, I started wanting to be a wrestler, and I remember going with my dad to the mall to pick out my first singlet. Y'all, I would not come out of the dressing room. I put that thing on and I cried. I, I was like, I look like a ballerina in tights. There's no way this 12-year-old boy is walking out of here wearing this singlet. And yet, I did. Because I wanted to be just like my brother. I, I didn't even like wrestling. Like the moment, I, I tell people, the moment I got my first scholarship offer playing football was the last day I ever wrestled a day in my life. I, but the only reason why I ever did it is because I wanted to emulate and be just like my brother. I sucked it up and did whatever it took to be like him. That's what following looks like. When Paul says to follow him, he means to act like him or to start to embody the way that he lives. Can I tell you a few things about Jesus? Listen, Jesus was joyful. I think one of the things that I, I don't understand sometimes is many Christians are, are just angry. Like our God was joyful. He was encouraging and he didn't have a great life. He was a builder, and the way that he described it is he was a homeless builder that walked around this world. People didn't like him. He was continually getting in arguments. He was poor, and, and he eventually was crucified, and yet he was always joyful because he trusted God, and he was secure in who he was. Jesus was gracious. Here's one that I love is Jesus was interruptible. Like, sometimes I think that we don't think Jesus was busy. He was so busy, on his way to go heal people and raise them from the dead, he would stop and be interrupted, and he would take the time for people around him. Here's where I was convicted. Half the time, I can't get off of social media just to talk to my kids. Jesus was present every moment. Now, I know, obviously, there were so many more things that Jesus was, but could you imagine just for a second if this is what people said about you? Man, I, like, I know that John's a big deal. He's a big deal. But the dude's always joyful, and he's so gracious. And every single time that I try to reach out to him, he's interruptible. And you know what? Whenever he talks to me, he engages in the moment. He just hangs out there. And, and it's like I'm the most important person in the world to him. Do you see how powerful that is? Imagine if just for a moment, that's what we were known for, is just emulating Jesus. So let me just ask you this. If following means emulating or imitating, who are you following? Who are you following? What shapes your life? 
All right, back to verse 13. Here's the next one. Look at it again. Next one's pattern. Follow the pattern. Now, that word pattern, uh, it doesn't mean like a sequence of events. It actually means something more like an outline. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is telling Timothy that he, his life is an outline for him to complete or to continue. Just like an artist. When an artist paints a picture or a writer writes a book, they tend to create an outline before they begin doing their thing. Paul is saying that his life has been lived in such a way that it's created a template for Timothy to model after and then to complete the drawing. Now notice that outlines, again, and patterns are not complete. They're, they're, they're just the beginning. What if, what if that's how God designed life to be? What if all the pieces of the picture, when they're put together, create something, and yet our lives are meant to be the next phase in the pattern? So that when we live our life in a certain way, we're adding to the next part of it. And then as we pass on our life to the next person, they add to it. And then eventually God creates a big picture out of our lives. Let me say this way. What if we're in the middle of history or the middle of a story right now? And you're supposed to be writing your chapter. And then you're supposed to tap somebody else on the shoulder and teach them how to write theirs too. That's what Paul is saying. So put the two words together. Paul is telling Timothy to follow or imitate the patterns or outline of his life. Again, let me just ask you, who are you following? What are the patterns of your life and the story that you're writing for the people around you? Remember the context? Remember what Paul's going through? Paul's sitting in prison, in a Roman prison cell, and, he's, and they're trying to destroy the church. By the way, I, I wrote this. This has a little caveat here. I want you to, if you have a physical Bible, I want you to hold it in your hand for just a second. All right, just hold it. Listen to me. This word that you have, nobody wanted to survive. You, you get this, that Paul is sitting in a Roman prison cell, and the Roman Empire had, they, they had no desire for God's word to make it. They, they tried everything they could to stop it. They killed our God, and they killed all the apostles for trying to keep this thing intact. And Paul is writing to him, and he's telling him, hold on to this thing. I, I think sometimes whenever I read my, my Bible or hold on to this, I, I don't realize how precious it is and how many people have sacrificed so much so that you could hold this thing in your hand. I, again, I don't know. You're watching online. I don't know if you believe in God or not, but here's what I want you to hear me say. This is the most incredibly powerful book that's ever been written. For 2,000 years, including today, people have tried to stop you from having this book. From people like Martin Luther, who sacrificed his life so that you could hold this, or William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake for translating this book into English so that you could read it, or the Apostle Paul, or every other apostle, or God himself. And then every Pharisee and all of the religious elites and the Roman Empire tried everything they could to corrupt this book. If there's any evidence that God exists, it's the fact that you are holding this book in your hand and reading it today. People have sacrificed everything for you. There have been wars fought over this book. So the next time you look down at this word, next time you read this Bible, I want you to read it as you're holding the most precious gift in the entire world given to you at the expense of people's lives. That's why we read this book. That's why I teach this book. That's why we don't just get up here and you hear eight lessons from Uncle Billy about how to have a better life. You don't want my wisdom anyway. It's God's word right here. And Paul knew that. Paul knew just how important it was that Timothy would not only imitate him, but that he would pass down this word. So Paul was passing on the baton to Timothy, and he was saying, mimic my life. What kind of life are we mimicking for the next generation? 
when our kids look up at us and when they see us, do they see us taking Jesus seriously? Do they see us as people who are experiencing and communicating the gospel or compartmentalizing our lives? I, I know I've told you this before, but every single time that I meet a kid who's a PK, a pastor's kid, I ask them the same exact question because pastor's kids tend to be one of two things. And, and if you've been around them long enough, you know this. They tend to either become like missionary pastors or they're just the most jacked up kids you've ever met and they hate Jesus. There's really no in between. So I always ask, hey, what made you fall in love with the church or what made you just hate the church? You, you know I get the same exact answer from both sides every single time. You know what it is? My dad was the same person Monday through Saturday as you saw on Sunday, and that's why I love the church. Or my dad was a very different person on Sunday than he was Monday through Saturday, and that's why I hate the church. Guys, it's the same thing. What they're saying is my dad loved Jesus. He wasn't perfect, and yet it overflowed into every sphere of their life. Look, I don't know about you, but I love my kids way too much for me to fake it up here for you. My life's messed up. I tell you that all the time, and it's not worth acting like I'm perfect around you because you can't relate to that anyway. Like, we struggle. We struggle with the same stuff that you struggle with. We struggle with contentment. We struggle with arguing about stuff that just doesn't matter or feeling like, like we want to be liked by people. I hope that you look at my life and I hope that you never see, man, Billy's perfect. No, I hope what you see is, no, that dude right there, he's real and he loves Jesus and they figure it out even in the struggle. See, you might not be a pastor. I get that. But you have the opportunity to model a holistic Christian life too. And your life speaks. Think about it. I mean, we're all the same. Like, you know how I know you're saying? Because I know that you want to murder people driving down Highway 402 whenever they cut you off in traffic because they're going 786 miles an hour. Right? I know that there are moments in the day when you want to karate kick your kid in the face because they asked you for a snack 17 times. And I know you're laughing because I'm not the only one. And I've jumped in your car to go to lunch. And you're hurrying up and getting, you know, Biggie Smalls off and putting on K-Love. Look, I don't like K-Love either. Like, you don't have to fake that stuff. And the, the TV shows, I mean, come on. The Netflix, the stuff that you guys watch, I get to slip up. Like, when you realize that you're not really supposed to be watching Game of Thrones and you start talking about Game of Thrones, you're like, hey, did you see that episode? It's like, no, I don't watch it. Yeah, oh, yeah, me, me either. No. How you respond in these moments, the moments that are hard, they're shaping the perspective of the people around you about what they think about Jesus. What I need you to hear me say is you don't have to be fake, just be real. Just be real. See, the best way you can pass down the patterns of your life to the next generation is to be real with your life and let the gospel bleed into every area of your life. It's not compartmentalized, it actually is real to you. All right, back to verse 13 again. I wanna show you the next phase, phrase patterns of sound words that you have heard from me. What, I want to put it all together for you. Paul wasn't just telling Timothy to follow him or even the patterns of his life. He was telling him that his words mattered. What he actually said mattered. Watch this. The gospel, the gospel is so much more than words, but it's not less. You get that, right? You've heard the quote. You've heard the quote, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. I get what they're trying to say but the gospel necessarily uses words. You actually have to use words to tell people about who Jesus is. Paul is about to go into a section where he's going to address a bunch of false teachers who are entering the church 
And he's going to point to Timothy, and he's going to say, you need to have sound teaching, sound doctrine, or else it's all going to fall apart. That's why doctrine matters. That's why discipleship matters. That's why cultural Christianity in the South has been fracturing for so long, because it's not based off of sound doctrine. That word sound there, it can actually, should be translated healthy, healthy doctrine. When the gospel is taught, it's like healthy food that makes the church grow because it connects us to reality and truth. You get that? The gospel is what makes spiritually sick people come alive. It's like the, it's like the vegetables you feed your kids, right? Oftentimes you feed your kids vegetables not because they like them, but because you know that they're going to make them grow. Like, can I give you a real world example of this? The reason why Andrew is four foot six is because all he ever ate was chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. By the way, I asked him for permission, and I told him, because it's your last Sunday, you're going to get some jokes today. That's, that's how you love. No, but seriously, the point, point is this. We have to feed ourselves. You have to feed yourself in a holistically healthy environment, or else you will never grow. It stunts your growth. So Paul is saying that you need not just doctrine, you need a healthy doctrine, you need good, sound doctrine if you're going to grow. Listen, there's a battle going on in this world, and it's real. It's not just a battle like the war that we're seeing in, in Europe. It's a battle for your soul. And if you think that that battle is only fought in the physical world, you are going to be defeated. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. Look at this, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces, in the, uh, forces of evil in the heavenly places. You want to know how to fight this fight? This fight that you can't see all the time? Follow the patterns of healthy teaching that you get from God's word. That means you have to know God's word. Listen, your best weapon in a vastly changing culture is knowing God's word. It's God's word that tells you the true reality of life. It's God's word that speaks truth to your life when things get hard. Do you realize that God didn't have to walk with us through this life? Do you realize that he could have walked away if he wanted to? He's God, but he chose not to. His character would not let him do it. God keeps his promises. And we just sang about this, and we're about to see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. God keeps his promises, and he is faithful even when we aren't. God put on flesh and blood because he loved you, and he made a promise to Abraham that long, long time ago. Do you know how much confidence that gives you in this world when you know the character and the word of God? There isn't a greater investment than you can make in your entire life than to study and drink deeply from God's word. It can literally make you come alive. All right, now watch this because Paul doesn't just stop there. This is what I love. This is, let's put the whole thing together. All right? In faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That preposition right there, in. Listen to what he says. Because this is so, so important. Paul is not only concerned with knowing right doctrine, but he's also concerned with how you live. Here's what, I'm, here's what that means. That means that you can always be right. You can always be right. And you can be a jerk. And then you're not right. The Christian life is about right doing, which is informed by right knowing. You have to have both. How many of us know people like this? They know all the right words, and yet nobody likes them. By the way, if you're sitting there thinking, I don't know anybody like that, it might be you. It might be you. you might want to check on that one. The Bible has a Greek word 
for Christians who know all the right doctrine and yet act like jerks. It's called Twitter. All right, and the Hebrew equivalent is Facebook. So if you ever want to look at it and just go online for a couple minutes, that's what you should not do. Okay, when, you, when you're going through your news feed and you see, oh, that Christian, he's got all the right doctrine. He just made them look real stupid. That does no good. Hear me. The rest of the world's not sitting back thinking, man, that was so wise. He totally made him look dumb with the Bible. No, the rest of the world is sitting there thinking, gosh, those Christians are a bunch of jerks. Paul seems to be just as concerned about how Timothy treats people as he has what he knows. Because we all know that being right rarely ever changes every, anybody's heart. I promise you, I promise you, this has never happened in my marriage. I have never gotten into an argument with Allison and just totally ripped her apart intellectually and grabbed God's word and pointed to a bunch of scriptures. And, she, and she's like, thank you, Billy. I am so thankful. Like, I want to grovel at your feet because you're so wise. You're just a wise sage. That gray hair you're getting in your head, it's like it just communicates such value. And, and, and I am so, I'm like, if I didn't have a husband like you, I don't know where I'd be. That doesn't happen. You know what she tells me? Shut up and go to your room. And when you're ready to talk, come back down and we'll have a real conversation. Listen, you can be right. And you can be totally wrong in the way that you're right and you're wrong. I think that that's the greatest lesson we need to learn. You can be right and totally wrong in the way that you're right and you're wrong. Let me just be transparent. Me and Allison have been married for like 11 years, almost 11 years. And for the first 10 and a half, uh, she would tell me, Billy, it's not what you say, it's how you said it that matters. And it's taken me so long to figure that one out. What we need is a group of people who are led by conviction and grace. We need people who remember that the struggle is real, and then they enter into that struggle with the people around them. That's where the gospel gets powerful. There's a psychological study that I love called the shrinking freshman syndrome. It goes something like this. When you're a freshman in high school, you feel like you've come up into the big leagues, right? You're not in middle school anymore. Like you, You're big. You're strong. You deserve to be there. Everybody should treat you that way. And you kind of puff your shoulders up, and you're like, man, I need to be treated this way. Eventually, you become a senior, and you look down on the freshmen, and you're like, man, they're so small. I can't believe they let them in our school. They don't belong here. Here's the point of the study. The study shows that the further you get away from that access point, the more you forget what it's like to be that person. That is the Christian life. When I first became a Christian, I struggled really, really, really hard with sin. And all I wanted in my life was people to just be patient with me. I was like, gosh, I'm trying, guys. I promise you, I am trying. And the people who made the greatest impact on my life were the people who were patient with me. I remember Chris, my buddy who's a missionary in the Philippines now. I'd meet with him every week, and he's like, man, did you party this week? I'd come hungover, and he'd be like, no. He knew. He knew, and he loved me. I'm, I'm a pastor today because he walked patiently and kindly with me. The people who made the greatest devastating impact in the worst kind of ways were the people who judged me and never gave me the opportunity to grow in my faith. The Christian life is about not forgetting what it was like to be that person. Listen, you can become so mature in your faith that you forget what it's like to struggle. I, uh, I've been a pastor for 14 years now. I don't struggle with the same sins anymore. I, I really don't. But there are other ones that I do. And if I forget what it's like to be that person, then I become judgmental and unkind, and then I can have right doctrine and wrong words, or wrong life. See, Christians tend to do the same exact thing whenever we forget what it's like to be there. We have to remember what it's like to come to faith. 
We have to remember what it's like to struggle. Paul is saying the same thing to Timothy. Live with conviction and live with grace and then you'll change the world. Having sound doctrine and seasoning it, seasoning it with a little bit of faith and love and hope that are in Christ Jesus, that's what changes the world. Like I've said a million times, I have never, ever, ever met anybody in my life who lost a debate and thought that's how I, I became a Christian because I lost this debate. But you know what I have seen? I've seen so many lives change even in this room because of the humble kindness of people that have walked alongside of one another through some of the most devastating times of their life. And we're patient and kind and loving and generous. I mean, I'm not going to do it, but I could point all of you out in this room. Whether it be losing a family member or going through a divorce or losing a job, a struggling or not having money, and then watching the people around us in community love us so well is what has grown this church and what will continue to do it. It's not being right about the fact that I can parse out doctrine. I went to seminary for six years. I could probably debate anybody in this room, and that's not going to change your heart. What's going to change your heart is the gospel coming alive. So having the right attitude is just as important as having the right doctrine. I'm just telling you, there's nothing worse than a bunch of people who use the Bible more as a weapon to hurt you than as a bandage to heal you. City Church, if we want to see the gospel flourish in this world, it's going to happen when we dive deeply into God's word and when we graciously live in this world. It's so countercultural and yet it's so beautiful. And it's the greatest evangelistic strategy of the early church. Just loving people well. That's how the church grew. So let me be really practical and give you two real practical pieces of advice. Number one, study your Bible. Man, it doesn't get more practical than that. Number two, learn to give the benefit of the doubt and assume the best of others. When you do those two things, when you intersect those two things, you create a beautiful balance of conviction and love, and that stuff is powerful. So practice the art of listening before giving an answer. Listen, you might just find that that person that you disagree with on social media has a pretty good reason for believing what they believe, even if you don't agree with them. That's where empathy comes in, right? And proximity breeds empathy. Getting close enough to people to actually intersect your life gives you a holistic way of seeing the world that maybe you just don't see it the same way that they do. And maybe you just need to chew on that for a second so that you might not ever agree with them, but at least you can understand them. Men, this might be the best piece of a marriage advice I could ever give you and one that I'm trying to practice too. Be present in the conversation and learn to be an active listener and you'll be amazed at what can happen in your life. I'm, that one's free, all right? And we all need to do it. Because I don't know about you, but the moment that somebody in my family starts talking, I've got a checklist about 14 ways to fix the problem and it's ever about fixing the problem. I, again, I'm just be, be transparent. It's not even in my notes. I might get in trouble for this. The other night, Allison's asking me to help her with laundry. Uh, and I'm like, I I'll do it. No problem, I'll do it. And what she said was, actually, I just want to talk to you so we can do it together. What I heard was, I need the laundry done. You see, you see the difference? I wasn't listening. I heard laundry. I was like, all right, I'm going to go get it done. And what she was really saying is, hey, what if we actually just hung out together? Being an active listener changes that. And we need to work together to do those things, which is what we're going to do together. Laundry. My favorite thing I get to do. Verse 14. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
See, life was hard for Timothy, and he was completely out of strength. I think one of the greatest weaknesses in our generation is this, is we depend too much on our own strength. So whatever life throws at us, we tend to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we tend to give the appearance of of strength. So when somebody asks me, hey, man, how are you doing? You know what my initial answer is? I'm fine. How are you? I'm not fine. Like, everything's a train wreck right now. But I'm never going to say that to you because I don't want you to see the real reality of who I am. Paul uses two prepositions in this passage that are really important. He says, live out the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, here's the next one highlighted, by the Holy Spirit. This is super important because Paul is telling him, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. I want you to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, remember the Roman Empire, it's falling apart, and Timothy is probably younger than I am at the time, and he's really struggling. The zeal that he started with when his hero, Paul, called him out on his first missionary journey to go with him was starting to evaporate. By the way, that's normal. After the honeymoon period tends to end, that's when the real work gets started. I was telling my friend this. I went down to the Dominican Republic to watch their church plant get started, and there was like 400 people there. And he's on cloud nine. I'm like, man, praise God. I'll check in with you at week eight when there's four people there. Because that's when the honeymoon period ends, and that's when you really have to dig in. That's where Timothy probably was. He's in Ephesus. His mentor is about to die under the Roman emperor Nero, and he has to remember that he has the power of the Holy Spirit. If you've been here the last couple weeks, there's four commandments that Paul gives him, and they're all really awesome and important, and yet none of them are possible without the power of the Holy Spirit. The first commandment was, don't be ashamed of the gospel. You remember this one? Because God has put his spirit inside of you, Paul told him. I think it's in verse 7 or 8. And that spirit is not a fear, but a power and sound mind. Then he tells him to share in his suffering. I think there's two really good reasons why Paul tells us to share in suffering. The first one is there's something powerful about knowing that you're not alone. There's something freeing about knowing that you're not the only one going through what you're going through. Can I just tell you that? Whatever you're going through, somebody else in this room has either gone through it or they're currently going through it too. What you need to do is you need to find that person and walk through it together. Matter of fact, they might have gone through it 10 years prior to you and they can give you some really good resources to walk through that. Can I tell you that this is what makes the church so vital? This is why gathering together in person is necessary because we transparently walk through life together and when we do that, it actually works Churches that act like they have to be perfect and never make mistakes end up destroying each other's lives. So every single time that I get on this stage, I risk, I risk something by sharing my struggles with you. Like, I get that. But you know what? I tell you that my family argues. I tell you that I'm messed up. I tell you that money is, you know, a concern for us. I tell you all these things because I need you to know that you don't just have a talking head on a stage telling you something that I don't experience too. We're all walking through this together, but you can walk through this and you can lean into one another or you can lean into God together and you can lean into God together or you can do it on your own. Paul tells him you need to follow or enter into the struggles together. That's the first reason that we need to do that. Here's the second reason that we need to do that. We need to do that because God often uses our suffering to draw us back into himself. This C.S. Lewis quote is one of my favorites. It says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. 
but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You know how I know this? When you start suffering is when you start praying. When things are going really well, that's when you live independently. None of us like to suffer, and yet it seems to be the way that God reveals our fragility and our weaknesses, and it pushes us back to lean into God. So Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Share in my sufferings. Follow the patterns of sound teaching, and here's the fourth one, guard the good deposit. Here's why I point all that out. None of those things are possible on your own strength. They're only, the only way that Timothy was going to be able to make it, the only way that he was going to be able to live this life was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Guard means to protect. It, 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 it's like a military term. It's what the Christian life often feels like. Like I'm constantly stiff-arming people away from me. I'm constantly having to defend what I believe. Maybe not out loud, but even to myself. Have you ever had that battle in your own mind? Do I really believe this? I mean, man, that's really hard. Like, yeah, whenever that happened, I, I don't really have a good answer for that. Or I just read this in the Bible, and I'm like, that makes no sense to me. Guys, you have to guard the good deposit of your faith by knowing God's word through the Holy Spirit because everything in culture and in this life is enticing you away from Jesus. Everything. Work has more for you, men. I'm just telling you, you can climb the corporate ladder if you live in Alpharetta and you have the job that you have. You can climb it as high as you want to. But it has a cost. And the question you have to ask yourself is, is it worth the compromise? Comparison. Comparison is a nasty trap that all of us are falling into if we're not careful. It might be the next car or the next house or the FOMO that we all get whenever we see your Instagram and you're always on your next trip. Maybe that's just me, but sometimes I, I don't follow anybody on Instagram because as I'm scrolling through, I can find myself wanting to be somewhere else in the world. Then those are all the good things. There's nothing inherently bad with any of those things. Men, though, I mean, if you're not careful, that lady at the office that still laughs at your stupid jokes, they're not really that funny, and you go home and you're like, why does my wife laugh at my jokes? That becomes a temptation, and that's a dangerous place to be. Do you know this? The Bible commands you to fight against the schemes of the enemy and to run or flee from sexual temptation. Let me tell you what that means. That means if the devil shows up at your door today, you should drop kick him in the face. If your high school sweetheart shows up at your job tomorrow, you should run like the place is on fire. You, you get that, right? The way that the Bible describes it is you're not strong enough for this. Don't kid yourself. It's not, you're not built for that. So you need to have things in place that don't let you fall into those temptations. Men, the internet is a war for your soul, and Netflix is trying to destroy your eyes. I'm just telling you. And that, ladies, ladies, your identity isn't in what you do or how much you have or how good of a parent you are. You are more than the things that you tend to compare yourself to. Instagram, it's a lie. Those Instagram models, they're not real. Zillow will always have bigger, better houses, and that bottle of Cabernet is going to run out, and it's not going to numb your reality. By the way, I asked a couple ladies if these were the things you dealt with, and one lady told me, she says, well, it tends to be white wine when we drink during the day. <laughs> I said, if you're day drinking, we got a bigger issue. <laughs> Listen to me, you're beautiful, you're sacrificial, you treat us so kind, don't buy into the lie that you're not good enough. You hear me? Yes, parenting's hard, 
I got four of them. One of them on the way. It's hard. And they don't listen. But they love you. They do. And you're doing a great job. Even when they don't act like it. You need to know that. I'm just telling you this because if you don't know that, you'll begin to question your value and that's when the enemy will attack you. You have to stand guard against the good deposit. It's a war. You have to fight for it or else you will fail. Remember, Timothy is starting to fail. You have to stand guard. Here's what that looks like. First one's prayer. Your greatest weapon against the enemy is prayer. The first thing you need to do when you wake up in the morning is ask God's spirit to be strong in your weaknesses. Whatever it is that gets at you, confess that and ask the spirit of God by the power of God to stand firm for you. Can I just give you a little piece of advice? Something I started doing that's been really helpful. Put screen time limits on your phone. My phone turns off at 10 p.m. and it turns back on at 7 a.m. Do you know why? Because after 10 p.m. is when I'm most tempted and I wake up every morning at 6 a.m. and I don't, wanna, I don't want my phone to be the first thing that I look at. I want my wife, my kids, and Jesus to be the first thing that I look at. And then at 7 a.m. after I get out of the shower, I look at the news. And that's my rhythm every day. And it's just being smart because I want to talk to Jesus before I talk to Twitter. Prayer. Here's number two. Exercising your gifts. I think there is something powerful about serving. There is something absolutely powerful about jumping into the game and fanning into flame the gifts that God has given you because it gives you confidence to stand guard. Here's what I mean. When I am apathetic and when I am unfulfilled is when I am most vulnerable. When you start serving and using your gifts, you come alive. That's why they matter. When I'm serving the Lord, when I'm involved in community, when I'm at my church, I feel the most alive and then I feel the least susceptible to attack. By the way, that's what community does for you. Community makes you known and exposed in all the right ways. It's when you're alone and unknown, and when you feel worthless, that's when you begin to be attacked. Guys, God has entrusted something beautiful to you. He made you a steward of some pretty amazing things, and the king of the universe wants to use you. So as you exercise your gifts, you not only become a blessing to the community, but the community becomes a blessing to you. It's what gives you confidence. By the way, again, that word good, good deposit, could or should be translated as beautiful. Here's why that's important. There's a difference between being useful and beautiful. Useful things you use whenever you can get something out of it. Beautiful things you like just because. I've been trying all week long to come up with a different example because I've used this one a million times. I just can't come up with a better one. I didn't understand this concept until me and Allison went to New York City for the first time together. The way that she looked at the city and the way that she came alive in the city. And then we went to the Met. Guys, to me, a picture is just a picture. Like Mona Lisa just looks like a middle-aged woman. To her, she got lost in the picture. I've never seen her gaze at things in such beauty as that. Walking through this place and seeing her get lost in the design and knowing what's going on with it. It's the way I feel whenever I turn on a good podcast or, or read a good book and an hour goes by and I don't even feel like anything had happened. See, the gifts that God gave you are beautiful. They're supposed to not be just useful, even though they are useful. They're supposed to make you get lost in something. 
to make you come alive. It's like you walking into the city, if that's you, or, you, or some of you going into a deer stand, and the way that you come alive whenever you, 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 you get in that element, that's what God's giftings are supposed to do for you. And when you engage in the community, you start to become the person that God has made you to be, and God's kingdom grows. See, Timothy needed to know that God's plan wasn't something, it was someone. It was him being the person that he had called him to be. It was someone who knows God's word and leads with gentleness, grace, and love. It was someone who leans into God, who God had called him to be, and is confident in that. And that someone, that someone can deliver over, if you will, this this doctrine, this pure word, and they can do it because they've entrusted that God will take care of them. See, here's the deal. The main way, this is going to be the last point, the main way that Paul encouraged Timothy to stand firm was to know God's word, to lean into God, and now watch this, number three, to obey what he knows. I think that that's the key. For many of us, we, we, we end at obedience. We know it, but we don't do anything with it. Do you realize the gap between good intentions and an actual life change is deciding to do something? That's what made General Grant work and General McClellan not it wasn't a matter of what they did. It, was a matter of what they, it wasn't a matter of what they know. It was a matter of what they did. He had to do something. The biggest challenge facing Timothy was, does he really believe that God is good and that he believed what God said he would do, he would do, and then was he willing to obey him, even when it didn't make any sense? And as he obeyed him, his faith grew and the world changed. Guys, gospel flourishing happens in obedience. It's not, you don't obey for obedience sake, you obey because you trust and you know exactly who God is. And it's obedience that takes the gifts of God and actually begins to use them. Living them out, delivering them in a beautiful way to the people around you. Since I was talking about art a little bit, it got me stuck on this this week. Did you know the Mona Lisa has only left the Louvre twice in the last hundred years? By the way, this is how bad I am. I thought the Louvre, looking at the structure of it, was cooler than the paintings inside. I said, that triangle thing out there is really cool. Can you imagine the two guys are the people who transported the Mona Lisa those two times? Can you imagine if they were hanging out one day and they're like, man, we want to make this thing better. So they grabbed a permanent marker and drew a mustache on her face or frayed the edges because they thought it'd be cool. You know, that wasn't their job. Their job was to take that painting and to deliver it to the destination the exact same way that they found it. Now imagine this. Imagine that you have a job. And your job is to guard the good deposit that God has put in you. Not to change it, not to add to it, but to take it. Do you know what that good deposit is? It's not just your gifts. It's his word. And imagine this. The four little gremlins that are going to be living in my house that God says, hey, I've given you this. I want you to pass it on to them exactly the way that I gave it to you. Through your life, through grace, through holiness, through actually believing this thing. And as you do that, I'm going to multiply the effectiveness of the gospel and spread it throughout the entire world for generations to I don't know about you, but that gets me fired up. Because I think that's what Paul was telling Timothy. 
Timothy, I know that your life is going to end and so is mine. But I'm telling you, one day you're going to be in heaven 2,000 years from now and there's going to be this little tiny church in the middle of Atlanta, Georgia. Don't worry, Timothy. You'll figure out what that place is one day. And they're going to be talking about you because you guarded the good deposit. And they're going to be people worshiping all over this planet, billions of them, worshiping King Jesus because they heard the gospel. And that guy, Sean, sitting in the front row of that church heard the gospel because somebody told him the gospel, who told him the gospel. And by the way, you can trace that all the way back to you, Timothy, where you told somebody the gospel. And it started connecting the dots all the way to this. Now listen to me. That can be your legacy too. I believe that God can do far more than what we could ever ask or imagine. If we will take what God's word says seriously, guarding the good deposit of our faith and passing it on, living with integrity, holding on to this thing because we know it's real and true. That's what God has for you. I think that's what God has for our church. It's hard, but it's worthwhile.